Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. And welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lauren LeBay. I'm excited to be here. If you liked our opening song, it's new. It's called Clarion Call. It's by the Mark Arneson Band. And you can go ahead and download that on any of the music platforms. They're actually donating the proceeds to Alzheimer Speaks, which I'm thrilled about. They're just an amazing band. And for those of you that are new to us, basically, I like to think that we're about sound information, not sound bites. I started this show because my mom had dementia for 30 years, and I thought it was critical that we raise everyone's voice and that we make it a little easier to find resources and support when we need it. So I'm so thrilled that you are going to be joining us today. Our guest is going to be Sue Ryan, who is an author and a care partner for her husband, who is now living in a community. And so we'll talk a little bit about that and a wonderful book that she has written, and she's got some giveaways for us as well. But I, but I always have to thank you, our listeners. Your likes, your clicks, and shares have really made a difference, and it is helping people find information. So for that, I, I can't thank you enough. So keep liking, clicking, and sharing, and feel free to subscribe to Alzheimer Speaks Radio or go to our main website, Alzheimer's Speaks, and you can learn a lot more about us there and all the initiatives that we have going. I always like to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory because I think it's such a wonderful support group for families and people living with dementia. Now, needless to say, with COVID going crazy all over the world, Memory Cafes are not meeting um, but many are online. So go to Memory Cafe directory and you can find out more about that. And then I want to also give a shout out to Live to Be Healthy. They are live streaming their fitness classes and you can find out more by going to live and then the number two and then the letter B healthy.com or you can email Kelly, K E L L Y. And then N for her last name at livetobehealthy.com. We are also doing a weekly open mic on COVID on Friday at 2 o'clock Eastern, 1 Central. That's 12 Mountain Time and 11 Pacific. And all are welcome to, to join that. So let me go ahead and introduce you to our guest today. Ryan is the founder of Our Journey of Love which helps people take the best care of themselves and those they care for. Her journey includes roles of care support as a granddaughter, a daughter, a wife, a friend, and an advocate. 
And during her early experience, she told me that it really felt like it was an emotional roller coaster for her, not knowing what to expect. And I think most people listening can understand that. So like most of us, she felt overwhelmed, exhausted, frustrated, confused, fearful, and very disappointed in herself. But she has come out the other side and is filled with knowledge. So Sue, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm great, Lori. How are you? I am I am thrilled to be here. I love doing these shows and I just adore having conversation with you because you're always so upbeat and positive. And yet, you know, you talk real life in terms of what you go through and how you experience it, but you just help people walk to the other side where there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that that is a beautiful thing to do. So I want to ask you first, if you wouldn't mind explaining how you got involved with caring for someone with dementia. I will. More than 30 years ago, our next door neighbors, Bob and Mary, which are the names were changed, but uh, our neighbors, Bob and Mary, Mary developed dementia. And we were all trying to help both of them. And this is before the internet, so we didn't have places to search. The Yellow Pages didn't have anything. Nobody talked about it, so there were no communities. The doctor only talked medicine. So we didn't know what we, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know what we were doing. We were constantly feeling frustrated. There were, there were moments when we felt good, and then there were moments when things just crashed, and I I say we felt like we were on an emotional roller coaster blindfolded. And so the first experience was just really hard on everybody. And we always felt like we were, we were letting each other down. So that was my start. When you said 30 years ago, you know, my mom has been gone for five years, but she was on the journey for 30. And I can so appreciate how you defined it all because it was, you were just out there on your own and you don't know what you don't know till you know, you don't know it and you need it. <laughs> and, then, and then it's this scramble and panic and, you know, how do, how do I get what I need? How do I find it? What's it even called? There's just uh, so many pieces in that, in that packet. Nobody wanted to talk about it. We, we really had, we struggled finding anybody who could give us any help. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I agree. It was very limited. And what I found was, it was mostly professionals that wanted to tell you how to live your life. They really, weren't, they really weren't so much interested in learning from you on what life was really like. They yeah. had kind of these preconceived ideas and, you know, it's changed significantly, you know, since that time, but it still has a long ways to go. But it's nice to see the progress that has, has been made. Now, you have written the book, Our Journey of Love, Five Steps to Navigate Your Caregiving Journey. What inspired you to write the book? So many times in the last few years, people have asked me about my perspective, and I keep saying, well, we're on our journey of love. And I, I said that when, when Jack and I were in, my, my husband's name is Jack, and he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and he is now living in a memory care community when when he was first diagnosed, I said, well, honey, this is just another chapter in our journey of love. And so my perspective on it from a loving place and from a positive place has been something I've developed over the years. And I was sharing it with more and more people. And 
finally just felt called to really try to share it with more people because it really helps. My perspective keeps me open and balanced throughout our journey with all the experiences. Well, and I think that being open is so important, you know, sometimes, and I know for myself in the beginning, I, you know, I was very task oriented and I was routine and everything was going to get done in a timely fashion and dementia had other plans, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my mom. It was just the disease. And I found myself and I can look back and laugh at it now where I was like, no, you know, we need to do this now. And if I would have just gone with the flow and been spontaneous, we would have gotten to what I felt needed to be done so much sooner, so much easier. And um, one day, uh, Harry Urban, who was uh, living with dementia and is part of my dementia chats that I facilitate, he made a comment that was so striking and so powerful that I love mentioning it. He says, yeah, he says, care partners are great, and, and, and we all know that they have our best interest in hand. He said, but what they have to realize is it's good to have a routine, but you have to analyze whose routine is it. Because it's yeah. much harder for us to follow your routine than it is for you to adjust mm -hmm. and follow ours. And I thought, oh, where was that lesson when I needed it, you know, many moons ago, you know, I learned that kind of the, the hard way. Um, but I guess that was just, just my path. But, you know, I would really encourage people to, to think about that and mm -hmm. how, how important that is. What are some of the most powerful lessons that you've learned in your various roles of caregiving in your life? couple I'll share. The first one I actually have as a repurposed lesson from my professional career in sales. And it's about labels and the definitions we have for words. What I learned in sales is if our prospect used a word and we had our definition of it, and that's what we assumed theirs was, we could miss the mark and that would have a really negative outcome on our, on our goals we might miss a great opportunity for a client and they wouldn't be satisfied. And so when I got into roles in caregiving, I recognized that there were people who were using labels that described the disease or using words that they really hadn't dis discovered for themselves if that was the right word for the emotion or for the experience. And it was really profound for me. And so I have continued to focus and focus and focus on that. So, you know, a couple of examples with that. Um, the label. Back when my dad was diagnosed, people would say one of two things. If, they, if it came up in conversation and we were talking about it, they would say, oh, I'm so sorry. Or, oh, that's so terrible. Or it's a horrible disease or and things like that. And what I've learned is that if you anchor on a label or you anchor on a word and you don't define it for yourself, you take on somebody else's definition and then, it, then you see that, that's the lens you see the disease through or the emotion through. And I didn't want to have that. I wanted to make sure that I was experiencing everything authentically. And so for me, when somebody would say, oh, I'm sorry, to me, I'm sorry is I'm apologizing. The word sorry means you're apologizing for something you have responsibility for. And they didn't have any responsibility. And so I would ask them, I said, well, why are you apologizing? You know, and they're like, oh, well, well, no. So they had to think again for what word might fit. And one of the ones that comes up so often that I feel really 
bad for people for is they feel guilty. And the word guilty, I hear it so often in the caregiving meetings. Oh, I, I feel guilty that you know, uh, my girlfriend's invited me to go out to lunch, but my husband can't go out. And so, you know, here I am leaving him and all that. And, and when in reality, they have someone who can be watching their husband. A great part of self-care is being in community and being with other people. A way to reduce compassion fatigue is being able to, to practice self-care and to share a little time and to kind of fill your buckets. And so is there a different word or is there a different emotion you could tie to that? So having people become conscious of the word they're using or the, what they're associating with it, maybe you could feel sad that your husband can't go out to lunch. You could feel grateful that you have the opportunity to share time with friends. So I try to, to match the, the emotion and the word to the environment so it's really authentic. Uh, I had a, a really negative experience with a psychiatrist early on in my husband's diagnosis. And in, when she greeted us, and I even wrote the words down, I didn't want to forget them. She said that horrible, dreadful, debilitating disease. And that's the lens she looked at, she looked through, for defining the disease. And I didn't want that to be the relationship we have with it. And I've seen people who take that on as the way they define the disease. And so one of my biggest lessons was, I'm going to make sure that I'm authentic in the emotions and the words and the labels that I'm using. And if other people are using them, I'm also going to ask them so I don't misunderstand what their intent is. Well, I love that. I, I'm big on words. And I, I've uh, done it with, uh, you know, probably more simpler and overt ones. But I think it's really you know, I like how you've broken down the guilt and I'm sorry, because they are so, so um, used out there. And, you know, we do it all the time. And people say, I'm sorry, you're going through this, or I'm sorry, you got divorced, or I'm like, and like you said, they had nothing to do with it. It just, you know, it's one of those things that happens in life. And, um, and then when people get so uncomfortable, they push away. You know, uh -huh. so if we can shift that to, you know, this isn't horrible. This is just one more thing in life we have to adjust to. But, you know, I, I, and I think I mentioned this to you when you were on the show uh, one other time with us is, you know, I look at my mom's disease as the biggest gift I'll ever get because yeah. she allowed me to reframe things and look at things differently instead of, oh, woe is me. And this isn't how I thought life would be. And there's mm -hmm. some real, real beauty in that. Now you talk about massive acceptance and you talk about mm -hmm. radical presence. Can mm -hmm. you, can you explain those to people? Yes. When I was in roles of caregiving earlier on, I would, I would accept it. And there was the, the kind of the, but, and what I realized uh, I kind of went back again to a repurposed lesson. I realized that when I was in junior high school and we were studying in science class, the concept of infinity, I couldn't grasp the concept of infinity. And it was so easy for me. I lost myself. I couldn't get beyond it. I was frustrated. My parents were like, well, it's, it's infinity, you know, and, and they were fine with it. Everybody else was fine with it. And I was just lost in it. And my science teacher finally said to me, there are some things in life we have to accept without the need to understand, so we can move on. And when I have been in caregiving roles, I have realized that 
it's so easy to lose ourselves when there's a significant event, when something happens, it's really easy for me to lose myself. So if I don't practice intentionally, massive acceptance, which I accept everything exactly as it is. I don't mourn the past. I don't try to project or look for things in the future. I don't look through the lens of the disease. I don't try to map something that may be coming up in the disease to what the behavior is. I, I, I accept it completely. That way, I'm allowed to stay radically present. And if I'm radically present, then I can observe exactly what's going on. And again, not through the filter of the disease or anything else, which allows me to see these moments of joy. For example, we had a musician came in and played wonderful, wonderful music. And there's a woman who's lost access to almost all of her mobility. And his music was so upbeat. I happened to glance over and I could see her move. Her foot was moving just infinitesimally, but she was moving her foot. And I thought, here is somebody who it's so important for her. And she's so engaged with this that she's able to make that tiny little movement. And I shared that with everybody. And we were all so thrilled that in the moment, this beautiful woman was able to experience that. And so if I'm radically present and I've accepted the disease, I'm not saying, oh, how horrible it is that she's lost access to nobility. I accept the fact that she's lost access to mobility and yet she's present here and I can see what's going on. It also helps me in those challenging times. There have been situations where Jack's in a dementia moment, something's going on and we can't really you know, figure out what it is, but it allows me, if I'm radically present, to try to put myself, kind of what you were saying with your mom, it allows me to put myself in his perspective. How can I try to come at this from where he's coming at it? And how can I help serve him the best? How can I get creative? How can I be open? We talked about words. If I use the word guilty, that's a word that closes down. It doesn't keep us open. But if I'm radically present and I've accepted that this is what it is, I can be really open to the potential and the possibilities for what can, what can occur. Yeah, I, I found for me, um, I learned to really pay attention to all those nonverbals. Like you said, that little teeny movement that most people won't see. The twinkle in the eye, the just little subtle, small, itsy bitsy things. But I found that those, you know, since my mom's been gone now five years, I find it's those moments that I remember intensely uh-huh. and, and make me feel connected and give me comfort. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think... I think a lot of this disease and, and people might laugh at me for saying this, and I kind of think it with the COVID too, that they're here to teach us a lesson to be better people, to get back to oh, a I sense of... I completely agree. I am so much better a person for the caregiving experiences I've had and I continue to have so, so much better. I, I completely agree. Yeah. And they do. They teach us every day and help us put things in perspective. Yeah, well, and when you're not trying to control it, I found for myself, I was just much calmer. I mean, I, I, you know, I could, I could roll with the punches or, you know, figure out what was going on so much faster than Mm -hmm. when I was fighting it all the time or saying, no, I don't want this. It it shouldn't be this way. It's got to be different. I, you know, I found different ways to connect. Um, One of those I'll just share with you is, Um, everyone a lot of times is worried that they're not going to remember your name. And my mom used to, um, towards the end, 
she would call me her mother. And so I'd come into the nursing home. She'd be sitting with her friends and she would always say, and there's my mother. She takes such good care of me. And she was just so joyful and Mm -hmm. so content. And I walked in one day with my older brother and he was so upset. What is she calling you grandma for? You don't look anything like grandma. He just went on and on. And she doesn't know my name either. And how can she not know me? And da, 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 da. And I said, Mark, I said, you have to remember, first of all, mom and grandma didn't have a good relationship. Somehow through this disease process, that's been healed. What an honor I get to be part of that. Let go of the, having to have the emotion of, of it being the way you want it. And, and just have, having your, you've got a very clear lens and we can see the beauty of that. If you didn't have that acceptance and being open to that, you wouldn't have made that connection. And your, your brother didn't have capacity to make that kind of a connection. And I, I really feel so strongly that when we are able to be present in the experience and look at it from that way, we can see just those tiny little moments or those huge lessons for us that we can then repurpose in other areas of our life. Yeah, it was, and I think too, when you realize, when, when you can be that, you know, radically present, as you say, um, you really get to appreciate their joy, their comfort, and it slows us down and says, wow, they're having a great day. That makes my day better. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really simple thing, but we so often don't take advantage of those breathing moments that can just, where you can be grateful, where you can be happy, where you can slow down. Um, Those are really powerful, powerful moments. Now, in your book, um, you focus on finding positives in the experience, which we've been talking about while uh, still honoring the challenging times, because there's tons of those at at every twist and turn. We never know when they're going to hit. Why is that so important? to you getting back to where i was talking about defining words and making sure that i had a definition for it when i look at the word positive positive is something that is open we're open to possibilities and we're open to potential and so for me to want for myself and for those around us and the care receiver to all have our most positive experiences doesn't mean that we don't have challenging experiences. It just means that we can be authentic to whatever that experience is. And so, for example, one of the things that happened not long ago with my husband is he was losing the ability to figure out how to sit down on the toilet and how to uh, put his pants down. And in the beginning, it could take 20 minutes for us to get that kind of a connection And what we were trying to do is everything we could possibly do to give him comfort. And by being able to stay positive and look at this, not from what he couldn't do anymore, not getting frustrated with it, but keeping my mind open, one of the nurses and I came up with a really creative option to give him something to do because he was afraid to let go of his pants, we figured out, because Mass Everyday Catholic, very, very prim and proper, uh, all moral, all the good things. He did not want to put his pants down in front of anyone else. And had we stayed closed and only focused on trying to get him to get his pants down so he could get on the toilet, 
we would not have been open. So when I say positive, it's that we can really be open to the potential and the possibilities, whether it's something like one of the other moments I was talking about, or whether it's something that we're dealing with that's more challenging to them at the time. Well, and that is so important too, because when we, you know, a lot of people don't understand when we get upset as care partners, they're going to mirror that and escalate that back to us. And so a lot of times we don't even know we're doing it. And then we blame them for getting upset. And it's like, you know, they were calm when we walked in the room. And so we really have to look at, you know, what's our tone of voice? What are we saying? What are our nonverbals? Because they're still taking all of that in, even if they can't respond the way they used to. And, you know, we can, we can cause a lot of fear. Um, My daughter, one time we were on a picnic and she just picked a cookie up off my mom's chest that she had eaten. And my mom just exploded in anger and screamed out in front of a hundred people. I hate you. Leave me alone. And my daughter who was 18 was just mortified. But when we broke it all down, you know, and it took a while because Danielle didn't understand the depths that we had to break it down. You know, I said, what were you doing with grandma? And, you know, they were talking and laughing. She was holding her hand and they, and she had eye contact. I said, well, what made you pick up the cookie? And she couldn't pin it down because so many times we don't even track that stuff. We just were in automatic mode. And so I, it made her kind of step through all of this and come to find out that they had, there was a break in the conversation that she was sitting next to grandma and she had to stand up to pick up the cookie and that she didn't have eye contact because she was looking at her chest. And, you know, to explain to her in that nanosecond, when those things disappeared, you were a stranger touching her in an inappropriate spot, and her reaction was perfectly justified. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, there's always a reason for what it is. And, you know, it's we have to be the ones to put on the investigative hat. And like you said, when we keep our minds open. Um, those things are just so much easier to see, you know, to try to figure out what are the triggers because there's always, there's always a trigger. There's always a trigger. And it's easier, as you were saying, with mirroring the emotions and the body language. And I'm so sensitive with my care receivers to look them straight in the eye, to be very positive with them, to use a soothing, calm language and not to look down at them and and not to come up where they can't be there and just to kind of be in their presence because we don't look the same way to them. I don't know if, if, if you've ever um, had these, uh, they've like the virtual experiences. There's the virtual Alzheimer's experience. There's the one for vision. There are different experiences where you kind of walk a mile in their shoes. You step into what their experience is and understanding that and understanding what the way they see it it helps them to be like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm not interfering with how they're experiencing what they're having. And I don't want to like you, like you were saying, where all of a sudden she's above her and she's reaching down and that's, you know, something. And so I try to stay really, really careful of that and always get at eye level or below. And now with my husband in a care facility and we'll go down the, we'll go down the hallway and there may be someone who's in a wheelchair. I get down to their height. I greet them. I don't bend over to greet them. I get down to their height. If I go in and Jack is sitting down, I get down. I'm either below him or at, at, at eye level and always with a smile on my face. And that, that just helps his whole area be more open. 
Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I want to talk about your book because you've done just such a great job. I love how it's laid out. I love all the acknowledgments and um, how people have supported you through this. And I mean, to me, it just, so it just um, told me so much about who who you are, your essence, and I loved that. And then the book is is broken down really nicely. Why don't you tell us about how you broke it down and why? And then I for sure want to talk about the elephants because uh, you have a lot of references to elephants in the book. And yes, the yes. When I talk about the the different the five different kinds of steps to navigating the journey. As with anything, it's not that it's linear. It's not like you're, you know, taking a model car and you're building it and you follow steps one, two, three, four, and five. I kind of walk through um, the emotions and the awareness and the opportunity and go to hope that when I first started in my first caregiving experience, I felt helpless and hopeless. I was confused. I didn't know, as, as I had mentioned. And then it was what are some of the resources that allowed me to start having a more positive experience? What were, the, what were the lessons that I repurposed from other areas in my life? What were the things that I learned from other people that just kept building me up and building me up and building me up to the point where then I could, I could talk about what hope is. And I talk in their book about finding hope. And I've had conversations with people who say, well, there is no hope with Alzheimer's. And I'm able to separate that and we can have a conversation about what hope is and how they can have hope and, and how they can look in their lives from a positive perspective. So it's more like navigating their emotions and their acceptance and then the potential that they have so that this can be a very positive experience for them. And, and it also walks them into having permission. A big part of what I do is, is I, I go in the book and I break down kind of the different responsibilities and areas of caregiving, and, and I do it in some other areas, but one of the things I learned in my life, we're not all wired the same, so we don't all act the same, we don't react the same, and when we have stressful situations, we need to be able to have permission to, to know who we authentically are so, so we can have the best relationship with it. Um, so I talk about that a little bit, where like, you know people who are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when they're under stress and when they're happy, and so I talk about a variety of different things in the book for people to step in to understand their own personal relationship, what their emotional relationship with it is, how to break things down so nothing's overwhelming. It's a big part of getting through there. And then to, to, to find hope and beauty in the, in the experience itself. Well, and I think the hope and beauty is so critical because, you know, again, I'll go back to the beginning of my journey. Everything was doom and gloom. I mean, nobody, nobody said anything about living well with this disease. And even though we have a lot more advocates out there and a lot more books even, you know, out there um, on this and videos and, you know, we're having the conversation, still the majority of the people feel hopeless when they get that diagnosis. And I, I think it's something that needs to change even at the doctor's office when the diagnosis is given. Um, because it's just critical. There could be uh, a great life with this disease. And, mm -hmm. you know, they don't know how long it's going to last. They told me, my mom, maybe seven years. You know, she lived 30. And yeah. then, then you had people arguing that, well, she couldn't have it because you don't live that long. Well, there's so little we know 
about dementia. It's, it's kind of like COVID-19. You know, there's so little we know. We're tracking it. We're trying to figure it out. But um, everybody reacts a little bit different to it. Everybody's environment's a little bit different. And so learning to look for the positive, I think, is so critically important because I'm a firm believer you, you find what you look for. And mm-hmm. so some of it is just changing that mindset to the possibility of doing stuff different. And I think part of it is being brave enough to try. You mm-hmm. know, even if it doesn't work, just be brave enough to try and feel good that, that you, you took that chance mm-hmm. to try to improve it. And, you know, and just because it didn't work one moment doesn't mean it's not going to work another moment, but you know, it's, it's, um, I think it gives you a sense of purpose too. You know, for me, it was like, I don't want this disease and this journey to be for nothing. I want to help the next person. And I think mm-hmm. there's, there's a beauty and a gift in that. And I think it also um, helps empower others to step up and not, not be so afraid. And, you know, everybody likes to volunteer or help the next person out. This is just another way we can do it by just simply having a conversation and telling people honestly, what's going on, what it's like, what's working, Mm -hmm. you know, all these simple things um, that we're talking about today, you know, um, granted, they're not necessarily going to change overnight. A lot of it's mindset you know, just catching it in the beginning. And um, once you kind of flip that switch, I, you know, I think for most people, it happens pretty, um, pretty quickly once they're committed, once they believe that a word can make a difference, that they can educate somebody else on what they've learned. You know, it's it just, this kind of information goes viral and because uh, people are in need of it. So I really appreciate you taking the time, you know, to be with us and to write the book. I know I still haven't written mine. I've got a couple of them in me, but I know it's a lot of work. Journey of love. Before we close, I do want to ask you because there are a lot of people who have a loved one in a community. How are Mm -hmm. you? How are you and Jack dealing with that? Because I've got the massive acceptance and radical presence, and you had talked about purpose because I've really connected with my purpose uh, with the journey, which is to do everything that I can to support Jack being safe and happy. And then recognize that part of my responsibility is as a caregiver is to make sure that his support team has everything they need to do their job so that he's the best resident and I'm the best caregiver is that I am following their guidelines. I have, uh, several weeks ago, I was there on a Wednesday and they asked me to leave. They said, we've been asked to have everybody leave. And I said, okay. And so I send cards, I send notes. I'm staying very, very balanced, very accepting. We have a few video conferences. And one of the um, people uh, who was talking with me the other day said, well, what happens if he doesn't remember you when you go back? And I said, I accept that the disease means that there will come a time when he will not recognize me anymore. And that is his head. That's the disease. That's not his heart. I know that he loves me. And so I accept that if part of what I am sacrificing in order for everybody to be healthy is him not remembering me anymore, that that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. 
It doesn't change how I feel about him. I'm not blaming anybody else. It's part of the disease. It's part of the progression. And it's part of what we're all going through. So I just enjoy the, the moments of seeing him and doing everything I can to support the team. But I don't have, um, I just, I don't have anger or sadness or any emotions that aren't going to serve me about that. Well, and I think that's a, a wonderful way to look at things. And I know even with my mom, there was a period of like three years, she didn't say my name. And I didn't know if she knew my name. And then one day out of the blue, she did. It just, she mustered it up and we had a quick giggle over it. And then she fell right back to sleep. And so we are connected on such deep heart levels. And in, yeah. for me, the journey really taught me that there are many levels of unconditional love. And you're not going to find them if you're not open to seeing them. And, and it's just, it's, to me, it's really, it, it, with my mom, it got to, I can't even put it into words, but it was such a spiritual experience that I can't, like I said, I can't even put it into words. It was so, so special, you know, and I, I thought I understood unconditional love when I had a child and this was just a whole nother level of unconditional love, you know, where you don't need words. And when you learn to appreciate, sometimes the safest place you can be is just next to somebody you love and not a mm -hmm. word has to be said, you know? Yeah. And, and we, we forget that sometimes when we're so concerned about appearance. Um, and, and, and I think sometimes people get trapped in, do they know you? Because that's what people ask. Uh -huh. And so then they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm, this is supposed to be important. And, you know, to me, I found that it was really not about the name. It was, you know, was she safe, happy and pain free in my presence? Uh -huh. Was I a comfort? Because if I can be a comfort, then we still have a connection. I agree with that because there when I am, and, and this is, this goes back in every one of the caregiving experiences that I've been in, when the care receiver is at peace, when, when my demeanor, when my language, when everything I'm doing, when my staying fully present to them so I can figure out how to try to get into their perspective and to bring peace to them, when they can be peaceful when I'm around them, that speaks so much more than words or anything else. And I think that's an amazing gift we have. And for me, the only way to do that is to be looking at everything exactly the way it is and not through the cloud of angst or I wish it wasn't this way or what's gone away, but just stay in that really present moment, which is where they live. They're in the present moment. Yep, exactly. Now, you have um, something that you want to give to our audience. Why don't you explain to them what the giveaway is? Yes, I have a giveaway for everyone, and it's four tips to positively navigate the, the elephants in the caregiving room. So it's four different tips, and these are things that I initially uh, repurposed from other parts of my life, but I had used them all. And one of them uh, is about the, the parable of the elephant and the blind men, the, the, the six blind men, and each one of them touches part of an elephant, so they each have a different truth. This is what the elephant is. And they believe it and they believe they're right. And that it, it's how to navigate that to make sure that you're getting all of the different perspectives that you possibly can before just taking one view of something and deciding that's the way it is. And then 
The next one gets to how they trained elephants. And, and while I don't agree with the way they used to train it, and they do it much more humanely now, the way they used to train them was the little baby elephant would be tied with their, their uh, leg to a stake and they would pull and they couldn't get away. And finally that became their reality and they accepted it. So even when they were bigger and they were strong, they never went back to reevaluate if that still served them, if that was still their truth. And so I talk about having us look at our experiences by reevaluating if this is the truth we want to have, if we're using someone else's truth or how we want to really define it. So we've got the best relationship with them. And then the next one came from business, which is um, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's breaking down this whole caregiving thing, which in and of itself could feel very overwhelming, breaking it down smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until we can finally look at the pieces objectively and figure out who the best person is, how we emotionally feel about it, what, what we need to do, and, and really learn how to navigate that. So I've got a lot of things to help with that. And then um, finally, let's see what my other one. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The elephants in the room, the, the conversations and the relationships that I'm sure many people have had different kinds of issues with that. And it's how to look at the different relationships and all the different kinds of conversations we need to have, how to break those down too and, and, and figure out how to navigate those and not push them away so that they just keep bouncing around in our head and getting bigger and bigger and we're avoiding them, but how to actually deal with them and feel better about them. So it's, it's how to handle those four four different areas of uh, elephants. Wonderful. And this is, uh, this is really meaty stuff too. This isn't just a, a one page with all these, you know, a couple of lines. This is actually 18 pages of really good, solid information. So um, I hope you will download that. We'll be putting the link there for you to be able to do that. Um, now your website is ourjourneyoflove.net. And they can email you at sue at ourjourneyoflove.net. And the book is on Amazon. So we'll have a direct link to that. And then people can find you on Facebook as well by just mm -hmm. uh, typing in Our Journey of Love. And then you are listed on LinkedIn as Sue Armstrong Ryan. If you're looking to connect there. And did you want to give a phone number out? Sure. My number is 239-537-5828. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I, like I said, I just enjoy talking with you. I feel so in sync with, with uh, your philosophy and caring, and I just think you're doing a beautiful job, and I would encourage people to go check out Sue's site. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate that. Thank you for all you're doing for our community. You know, talk about paying it forward. You're paying it forward in, in spades over and over and over again. And so a lot of people are having a better caregiving journey because of you investing in so many of us. So thank well, you. Well, thank you. I, this was kind of a commitment my mom and I made together. And um, even when she was literally actively dying, she had said, you need to continue this. And I said, well, I'm not doing it alone, you know, and I, I feel her presence around me all the time. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's amazing to be able to talk with, with so many around the world at all ages and stages and, and what people are doing. It's really a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, to be able to see and to grow. 
So again, thank you so much. In wrapping up, I just want to thank you all for watching and listening to the show, whichever way you, you uh, took advantage of it. Again, please pass it along. And if you have any questions or comments, you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big gold contact button. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. Maybe you can be our next guest. And if you liked our opening song, Clarion Call, you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Again, Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.